Ye peoples of Asgard, heed my words. I hold in my left hand the great scepter of Odin. In my right, I hold the mighty spear Gungnir that Odin once wielded in war. These are the true tokens of the liege lord of the realm. What say you, peoples of Asgard? Shall Baldur the Brave be given these tokens with our pledge of undying fealty? Shall he rule the golden realm of Asgard? I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 10 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of the Mighty Thor. And behold, having completed the Baldur the Brave miniseries, we are back in Thorland once again. And I'm happy to be here. Baldur was good, but Thor's my favorite. Yes, the Baldur the Brave miniseries was interesting, but it is it is nice to be back home with Thor. Indeed. So, Elizabeth, how have you been? Pretty good. Kind of waterlogged. I'm kind of having my own frog Thor moment myself, I guess. Uh, my daughter is having swimming lessons every day, and she's little enough that I have to be in the water with her. So unfortunately, I have to forego my favorite part of being at a swimming pool, which is laying beside the pool and reading. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. That kind of relaxation is glorious. I was actually on a river here in Portland uh, last weekend myself, the day after we recorded, and it was awesome. It was like in the upper 90s and the water was super cool and there was lots of alcohol that would have certainly been illegal so there's no way we would have brought it onto the river. Certainly not. Oh, it was great. Uh, but yes, now we're back in the studio um, and while it's not quite as good as uh, the river or even the pool, it is a place where we get to talk about Thor. So there's definitely that and I am psyched. Yes, me too. So this time uh, we have kind of a strange set of issues. It's only three issues. Sometimes that's how the storylines work out. But this also marks the transition in terms of who's been penciling Thor, who's been doing the art. Much like, you know, the all thing, this is a great passing of the scepter from Walter Simonson to Sal Buscema. Do you think they actually passed a scepter from one to the other? I, I like to think they did. Maybe it was a pen. They pass a pen. Maybe it was a really epic, like, golden, complicated-looking Jack Kirby-inspired pen? No, it was one of those pens that's actually, like, five different colors, and you push down, like, each tab to get a different, you know, those ones where you get, like, green yeah. or whatever? Yeah, one of those. Oh, man, I drew so many X-Men in, like, a wide-ruled notebook back in elementary school using one of those things. <laughs> that's rad. There were a lot of green Cyclopses. Oh. Well, you know, that makes sense. He's usually envious about something. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, anyway, so we're going to be covering Thor number 367 through 369. And not only is it a strange arc because we have the art team transitioning, but it's also just in some ways so much quieter and so much smaller scale and lower stakes than what's come before or after. I mean, there are parts that are very high stakes, don't get me wrong, but it's just more of a, a chill Asgardian story, you know? Yeah, in a way, it kind of speaks to the less kind of stage-managed promoting era of comics in that Walter Simonson's art didn't go out on a bang. It just seems like he just came to the end of it, and I don't know if it's because he suddenly realized he doesn't have enough time to write and draw or if he had another project going on, but they didn't really end his art with a lot of fanfare. Yeah, that's strange, and I agree that's definitely something that would be done today, and I do know that Walter Simonson stopped writing Thor because he had become very busy, he was looking to take a break and have a change of pace, totally legit, 
But the last issue of his story very much does feel like a last issue, like a series finale. And here, I agree. It's just sort of an almost arbitrary point where the art transitions to Sal Buscema. I'd be very curious to hear why Walter Simonson decided to pull back from artistic duties and just to stick with writing. I've, I looked around a little, but I couldn't actually find out why. So listeners, if if you know, um, hit us up on the comments on this episode on our blog or on social media or whatever. Right? I'd be very curious. Or Walter Simonson, you know, if you're listening to this, feel free to chime in. We would love to hear your stories. <laughs> but for now, we're going to talk about your stories. So how about we dive into Thor number 367, The Harvest of the Sea. And it starts with basically a recap at the end of Balder the Brave, number four, where Balder and Carnilla have this heartfelt goodbye because Carnilla must stay in her ruined kingdom and Balder must leave to go to Asgard and assume the throne. And it's interesting because it's sort of a different perspective. Elizabeth, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that the Balder the Brave version of this scene focuses more on Carnilla's emotional experience of it, and it's very much Balder here. Yeah, the focus in the panel is on Balder riding away and Carnilla in the background, which makes a lot of storytelling sense here because we are following Balder and not Carnilla. But we don't follow Balder for long because once we've seen that Balder has left, the next person we see is Thor. He's in his great hall, his amazing giant bedroom with that amazing giant fish dragon head bed that may or may not contain Asgardian Corbinite threesomes. We're, we're just saying, read between the lines, people. Read between the panels. Uh, but anyway, he's there reminiscing. So much has changed since my father vanished. Or perhaps everything is the same, and I have changed. Thor is wondering whether Odin would have approved of him giving up the golden throne to Balder and going back to Midgard. And he thinks maybe Sif could tell him. But he's sort of afraid of that conversation because they left things at a sort of ambiguous point. And as well as she knows him and as much static as there is in their dynamic, like that might get kind of weird. One thing has certainly changed. At this point, we see that Thor has a beard. I love Thor with a beard. Like, I was really pleased when it turned out that in the movies he was going to have a beard, albeit a very short one, because, okay, A, mythologically, Thor always had a beard. Like, these were Viking space gods, not just any old space gods, so there were a lot of beards, I would imagine. And, uh, I don't know, I'm a beard aficionado myself, I enjoy my own beard, I, I personally find that if other people choose to grow a beard, then that's that's a decision I very much support. And so, seeing my Asgardian main man with a glorious facial rug, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and it's a good beard, too. It's a gorgeous beard, it's very handsome, and, you know, Thor has grown and developed and aged, he's been through some huge kind of milestones his father has gone he's uh, you know passed up being the king of asgard he's fought in hell he has matured and the beard you know it reflects that it's a nice nice older man look on him now as a reminder one of the main reasons he's grown this beard is that his face was just torn the hell apart by hella herself when they fought in her realm of the dead so we never got to see exactly what happened but based on the reactions we saw from other characters it must have been pretty bad what impresses me is that if he was all scarred and shredded and torn up like how could you have a beard that that full like your follicles would be all screwed up right that's literally what I was thinking right now. Like, yeah, apparently Asgardian follicles, like every other part of the Asgardian, is like three times more dense and uh, durable than anything on a human. Now I want to see the beard statistics in like Marvel.Wikia or those old Marvel Universe trading cards. I want to know what Thor was originally using to shave, you know? Like, was he like Superman where he had to get like a laser and bounce it off something? No, I'm just imagining him tapping himself in the face with Mjolnir <gasps> repeatedly. Oh my god, maybe part of Mjolnir has like a cutting edge, you know? 
By the non-bristling beard of me. <laughs> but in any case, Thor is looking at himself in the mirror and musing about his latest makeover. After all these years, I begin to resemble the storied thunder god of earthly legend. And yet, though the face is different, am I not the same god? Meanwhile, Beta Ray, Bill, and Sif are on a rooftop in Asgard, and Sif is complaining that Thor is like a stranger to her. Is it me, or does, like, every serious conversation that the Lady Sif and Beta Ray Bill have happen on a rooftop? I think this is, like, number three out of three. Yeah, this is their thing for some reason. They're like, we have a really important thing to talk about. Let's get up really high. I mean, it kind of makes sense, because you know how you're having a conversation with someone, and usually, like, one person's speaking and one person's listening, and you only have one person looking at the other? I was actually reading a study that apparently that's partially determined by cultural upbringing, like whether you look at the other person while you're talking or while you're listening, and so it was theorized that perhaps some of the challenge of black and white communities conversing was that difference. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's accurate, but if you're on a roof and you have, like, a whole freaking shining city to look at, you can just both look at the city, problem solved, any of your Asgardian, Corbinite cultural differences won't be as relevant, right? True, and maybe it's easier for them to be alone there, you know, maybe Asgardians just don't go up on the roofs very often, like, or if they see Bill and, and Sif up there, they're like, oh boy, they're having another talk, stay away. <laughs> Those two again. <laughs> But yeah, Beta Ray Bill is wondering if Thor and Sif are indeed finally over, if their relationship has come to an end, and thus if Sif will come with him back to his people, back to the stars. Tis something I have thought much about already. Pray, Bill, let me think a little longer. And Bill replies, As you wish, Sif, but I cannot wait forever. Well, they don't have to wait forever because they're interrupted by Hogan the Grimm and Agnar, the friend-slash-assistant of Baldur, who have finally made it to Asgard from Nornheim to warn of the Frost Giant's plot to overthrow Asgard. Of course, we learned a lot about this in the Baldur the Brave miniseries, and uh, now the Asgardians know as much as we the readers do. And Thor immediately takes command. He tells Heimdall to go to the high seat to spy on the giants and see where Baldur is. And Heimdall muses... Thor wears the mantle of command well. I wonder if he was not too hasty in giving up the throne. To bow before one's father is the duty of every son. To bow before a friend, that is sometimes difficult. This is something I think everybody can relate to who has, like, worked a job. Like, you have co-workers, your friends, and then you go day by day and someone gets promoted and it gets kind of awkward. You think you can still be friends, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Yeah, seriously, it's it's not the easiest thing. I mean, you know, now Baldur gets a nice new corner office, and he's not sitting in the cubicle next to Thor. They can't just throw paper airplanes above the partition wall the way they used to at each other. Maybe he has to give Thor a yearly performance review. Oh, and that would be just super awkward, like Thor sitting there, like in, in the folding chair in front of Baldur's big desk, and... Yeah, I, I like this. If Balder probably gets more vacation days, you know, really kind of burns Thor's grits a little bit. It's a rough thing. But anyway, at Hlidskjalf, the high seat, Heimdall watches over the land with his eagle eyes, and he sees that, in fact, the Frost Giants, who he was just warned about, have already been defeated, and Balder is already headed toward Asgard. And I really do like this visually, because we see a panel of, you know, the melted castle of Utgard-Loki and the tiny Frost Giants walking away from it, and Heimdall's eyes in the background are just this giant overlay. It really does get across how ever-present his perceptions are. Yeah, that was a great way to evoke his powers, like, that you can only do— I mean, you could do it in a movie, but I think it really works best in a comic. Yeah, that kind of expressiveness, that kind of visual symbolism, comics, I think, are uniquely suited for. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Next, we see Loki, who, of course, is disgusted by Baldur's triumph. Loki basically hates it when good people do good things. He's just not a fan of that. Yeah, yeah, it's his brand. And he calls upon an ally of his that we have not previously seen. This is a sort of monstrous being, which apparently is a kind of troll, but certainly not like any troll we've seen before. This is Uglitha, who's sort of this giant, pink, massive, slug-looking, awesome-looking monster. I love the way Salbisama draws Uglitha. Yeah, she looks like a cross between, like, an elephant and like a caterpillar or something. She actually greatly reminds me of the mutant leech from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number 24 through 26. It's a storyline called The River that I loved when I was a kid because it was just so much more serious than a lot of those comics were. Like, Raphael gets his blood sucked out by a leech while the turtles are training near a river, and he sort of devolves psychologically and physically. It's sort of like a a mutant flowers for Algernon, and it's super sad. Oh, man. Flowers for Algernon messed me up. For years, I was worried that I was devolving. I know, I read that and Lord of the Flies like back to back when I was about nine years old and I don't think I was ready for either of those books. Yeah, yeah, there should be a warning, although that would just make kids want to read them more. That's true, yeah. I was I was also too young when I read Dracula. I was so scared of the book uh, when I got to the part where Jonathan Harker was trying to kill Dracula with a shovel while he was in his coffin um, <laughs> that I actually hid it behind my bookshelf because the weird blue skin picture of Dracula on the cover looked like it was looking at me. Aww, that is cute. See, I would just get into my mother's racy romance like a Gene Owl, a Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. No, Dif- different experience. There was a, a copy of that series in my school library, and let's just say that the books fell open to very specific parts. <laughs> but anyway, Lorelai interrupts this scene, and Loki throws a book at her, ordering her out of his chamber and demanding a drink. And I do love his admonition to her when she comes in. How many times have I warned you to stay out of the Chamber of Sorceries when the door is closed? What was that line from Idiocracy? Go away! Baiton! But it seriously does seem like, you know, look, he just wants his privacy. He's He could have been doing anything in there. Exactly. He could have been having private time. <laughs> private time's a thing. But a sobbing Lorelei is comforted by a mysterious figure. And by mysterious, you of course mean... Clearly it's Malekith, the same way that clearly the figure that Loki was talking to in the last arc, who was in Shadow, was Malekith. Malekith, of course, had been imprisoned in the Prison of No Escape, which, I gotta say, we'll see another example of it in this arc. That prison probably needs a new name. Yeah, yeah, the Asgardian people should vote on that while they're, like, voting in their new leader. The Prison of Less Escape Than There Might Be, or the Prison of Moderate Escape. (laughs) Yes. And Lorelai is heartbroken because, of course, she is magically in love with Loki thanks to a spell cast by her sister, the Enchantress. It's Loki. I love him so, and he treats me as if I were a serving maid. I think he's getting bored with me. That's never happened before, and I don't know what to do. And Malekith offers her a fairy love potion. A few drops of this in your lover's drink, and he'll think of no one else again. Oh, but... No, no. Don't thank me now. The look of happiness I shall see in your eyes will be thanks enough. So Lorelai brings drinks for both her and Loki, and just as Loki is preparing to break things off with her, they drink a toast and fall to the floor unconscious, while Malekith gloats about taking the throne of Asgard. I mean, I know Lorelai's not exactly the uh, the brightest bulb in the lamp, but I gotta say, why would anybody ever trust Malekith? Like... 
he makes Loki look honest. Yeah, yeah. I think this must just show her desperation because clearly right before they did their toast, Loki says something about basically like, thanks for playing. We're going to have to terminate our arrangement. So this is just her last gasp effort to try to stay with Loki. I was wondering, so do you think Loki intended to break up with her or to kill her or something? if Lorelai would be important enough for him to kill like and I think in a way that'd be even worse for Lorelai like he doesn't hate her he is just bored of her right she's almost irrelevant to him she's like a gnat you know she's a one-night stand who's like stayed way too long I really do feel bad for Lorelai like I know she makes terrible decisions and has terrible priorities but I don't know like everything keeps going wrong for her everything keeps failing yeah it does seem unfair that she's in love with Loki because of a spell I wish that you know Loki could just undo that I mean he's magic right I think it's the same like you said before though he just doesn't even care sure sure so we've checked in with various characters but the grand event going on in Asgard that everything is leading up to is the great coronation because of course at the end of the last arc Thor gave up the throne of Asgard in favor of Baldur the Brave, who he thought would be even better at the job than he would have been. As the stage is being constructed by some dudes in truly, truly amazing armor, suddenly Malekith the Accursed, who was meddling and uh, showing up with a bunch of explosives, is apprehended and knocked unconscious. So he's taken back to the Dungeon of No Escape and bound with magic, and one of the guards says... Tis done, Thor. Loki himself could not escape these bonds. And then, after all this excitement, suddenly Balder rides up to the gates of the Golden City and is welcomed by all. And Thor is overjoyed to see his friend after so long. He invites him to finally have that drink they were going to share, to have Scourge's last laugh that Scourge had requested before he died. But Balder kind of blows him off because everybody else wants his attention and Thor's just left behind. And Thor, like everyone else, is wondering if Balder ascending to the throne is going to change their friendship. Right. Now, everybody else is getting ready for the coronation as well. And most importantly, the family of Volstag the Voluminous, Volstag the Valiant, Volstag the Lion of Asgard, they're getting ready. Or at least, sort of. Because Hildy is beating the crap out of all of her siblings who are making fun of her for having to wear a dress when she's very much a tomboy. Yeah, she is pretty irate that she has to wear a dress. And of course, her brothers take this moment to needle her about it because they're decent brothers. They're supposed to do this sort of thing. Until Hogan the Grim puts the fear of God, which is to say the fear of Hogan, into them and they shape up. And we have this wonderful page as the family leaves of Volstag and his wife Gudrun leading the way as the pack of children of, I don't know, probably like 20 children follows behind them. But it's a full page spread of Volstag and Gudrun. And this is, I think, the first time we've seen her on panel in Walter Simonson's run, isn't it? It definitely is. And, you know, she is more than a match for Volstag. Like, her character design is just so big and bright and wonderful and she is every bit you know as visually pleasing as Volstag is and seeing them walk off hand in hand with their tiny little feet is just delightful. Ah Gudrun dear heart there is no joy like that of having a troop of well-behaved well-brought-up children except perhaps that of escorting the very flower of all Asgardian womanhood. Flatterer. 
I love them so much. I mean, Volstead complains about being stuck at home or having to wash dishes or having to deal with his kids or his wife, but it is so clear that there is nothing more in the nine worlds that Volstagg loves than his family and his wife, and he really does see her as just the most beautiful woman in the world, and seeing the way she looks back at him, it's just, I think we should all hope for a relationship that pure and glorious. Finally, we have a harmonious relationship of true equals who truly enjoy each other's company. Also, it's a female character in this run who is not a deceptive sorceress and is also not Sif or Frigga. That's number three. Yay! But meanwhile, a very different scene is about to play off over at the Enchantresses as Heimdall goes to see her to try to escort her to the coronation, but she shoes him off in anticipation of Scourge's return. And Heimdall says, You mean you've not heard? Heard what, Heimdall? Now hurry and be gone. Scourge will be here at any moment. I fear, Amora, that his days of waiting on the Enchantress are over for good. The Executioner has a new mistress. What? He gave his life for the mighty Thor in Hell, lady. He belongs to Hela now. Perhaps she will respect him as he deserves. Impossible! You're lying! And she just smashes up everything around her while vowing vengeance on Thor, the man responsible for Scourge's death. And this is surprising because the Enchantress had not ever cared about Scourge, the man who had doted on her ever since their first appearances. It's only now when he's gone, when he's dead, when he's fallen in a context that had nothing to do with her, that she realizes what she's lost. This was a very satisfying moment for me to read because at their last interaction, the Enchantress was so dismissive and insulting to Scourge. And here you do kind of see the other side of that relationship where you see that she does care about him and she's chewing off Heimdall. It turns out that maybe Heimdall was just a passing fancy and Scourge really is her main partner and the gut punch of her realizing that her, whether he's her boyfriend or just her favorite slave, it's very potent. It's like the power ballad says, you don't know what you got till it's gone. (laughs) So you feel bad for the Enchantress, but you also feel kind of glad for Scourge that she took it that way. It'd be way worse if she was like, oh, gotta find another one. Whatevs, dude. (laughs) But the grand event is about to start. We've checked in on most of our major players at this point. They're all heading to the same thing. They're all heading to Baldur's Coronation at the grand stage. And here Sif finds Thor. She has something to say, but Thor interrupts her. And he humbly begs her forgiveness. The apology he gives here is the one that he should have given in the first place. He finally accepts responsibility for his actions, doesn't make it all about him, doesn't make it all about his reactions to her reaction. It's nicely done. Yes, he tells her that he learned of the unselfish nature of love in hell and says, Lady Sif, I beg you to forgive me. And if you cannot find it in your heart now... I will wait until the end of time to receive it. And Sif doesn't know what to say. She was literally about to tell him that she was leaving with Bill, but they're interrupted by a malicious Lorelei. Who says, If you'd stayed with me, you would still be beautiful instead of hiding a ravaged face behind a beard that fools no one. And you would have been king as well. Do you think I'd have let you give a throne away to anyone? Now you are pathetic. Skulking alone to the coronation that should have been yours. And Sif punches Lorelai in the face, taking Thor's arm and walking off with him. 
we were talking earlier how it's like if you're fighting with your friend and you're kind of having a tiff, but then someone else comes up and starts harassing your friend, you're like, hey, that's my friend. Like, this is kind of what Sif needed, the final piece of the puzzle to forgive Thor. She really sees how vile Lorelai is and how Lorelai didn't respect Thor. And she's kind of reminded of everything that Thor's been through lately. So I have mixed feelings about this because Sif had been planning to go off with Beta Ray Bill to space, to be Beta Ray Bill's partner, presumably, and to journey with him among the stars. And I've always really liked Sif and Bill's dynamic. I feel like they're good for each other. They help each other grow. And if this scene hadn't happened this way, she would have actually done it. So as much as this seems enjoyable and satisfying, it does feel good to see these characters we like finally making up, finally uh, having forgiveness between them. It's, it's just mixed, you know? What, what do you think? Well, I think Bill and Sif are probably a healthier relationship in many respects. I think the fact that she was either going to stay or go according to what she got from Thor kind of says it all. Like Thor is number one in her heart. And even if she had left with Bill, who's to say that she wouldn't have returned if, you know, circumstances changed or Thor reached out to her. So maybe it's saving Bill a lot of heartache. That may be true, but still, I I feel bad for the guy. I mean, his world got destroyed, his people are in cold sleep, he got transformed into a weird robot horse, and now this woman that he'd really been bonding with went back to her old boyfriend, leaving him all alone in space with his sleeping fleet. That is pretty sad. I'm sorry, Beta Ray Bill. Maybe there's some sort of, you know, like, super heroic Asgardian space horse dating service, you know, that he could apply to, like, enjoys long walks on the beach, having serious conversations on rooftops, uh, must like horses. (laughs) (laughs) The Marvel Universe is a big place. There is someone out there for you, Beta Ray Bill. Yes. And the coronation at long last begins. But not before we see what's going on in the prison of moderate escape. As Malekith languishes in the dungeon, bound, unable to gesture or speak or cast spells, suddenly the ground itself explodes upward and we see a figure we haven't seen in a little while, that being Curse. That being a red and orange armor-clad, vengeance-fueled monstrosity, last seen beating up the entire realm of hell, and now here in Asgard with an imprisoned, helpless Malekith. Malekith frantically tells Curse that actually Balder is the one he wants, which really makes no sense because, as we know, Curse was once Algrim, who was, you know, almost dead and basically grievously wounded by Malekith. What does Balder have to do with anything? So as we see Malekith get pounded into the ground by Curse, something is clearly up. But it's not long before, during the invocation of the coronation as Balder addresses the crowd, that Curse appears amid that crowd— makes his way up to Balder, throwing Asgardians to the left and to the right, yelling, Death! 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 And Curse does make it to Balder, and even though Thor and Agnar leap to Balder's defense, Curse grabs Balder by the neck, snaps that neck, and Balder the Brave is dead. Yikes! So that's a hell of a place to end an issue, and that, in fact, is also where we end Walter Simonson's run as the regular artist of the Mighty Thor. He will be back for one more issue toward the end of his run, and boy howdy is it a doozy. I'm excited to get to that one. But as of right now, Sal Buscema is the regular artist on the Mighty Thor. I can see what you mean. I mean, it's kind of abrupt that Walter Simonson didn't even finish out this arc. Like, he actually stops in the middle of a very important event, which is Baldur's Coronation. Well, at least in Thor number 368, The Eye of the Beholder, we pick up exactly where we left off. 
Sal draws the exact same panel that Walter did, and I like that. I like that their transition is just from one scene to exactly the same scene. It's sort of seamless. Yeah, it's very nice. And I have to say what I like about Buscema's work is its kind of Silver Age fairy tale quality, which lends itself very well to the next part of this arc. So Curse stands over Balder, and there's this nice wide-open eyes, like drool coming out of his mouth depiction of Balder's corpse face. It really adds to the horror. I mean, this isn't one of those, oh, he's dead, but we have no body to bury. It's, oh, he's dead, and there he is, very clearly, very visibly dead. It is pretty graphic, and Agnar rushes forward, but Thor says, Hold, Agnar. Thor bids thee stay thy wrath. And he asks Agnar to touch the corpse with his sword. And with a to either side of the panel, Balder is revealed as Malekith. Which makes sense. I mean, Agnar's sword, in this case the Sword of Frey, it's made of iron. And the Fair Folk, their enchantments are always dispelled by iron. And yeah, sure enough, Curse has killed Malekith. Malekith is dead. Now, if you've been reading current Thor, you may know that Malekith is indeed up and about and doing horrible, horrible things to the Nine Realms, but he stays dead from here for a full 100 issues. He actually has to be pulled out of hell when he comes back, so I I do like that they stick with it, that he did, in fact, get killed by Curse. He kind of had like a Jean Grey death, you know, like just long enough and back. Exactly. Now, with Malekith dead, Curse is dormant. He's just standing there. We've only ever seen him as this unstoppable engine of wrath and destruction, and now he's almost like a statue just staring off into space. This was what animated him. The will to kill was what the Beyonder first found within Algrim the Strong. Why he transformed Algrim into Kirsten without that will, it's just basically an empty suit of armor. Yeah, it's like he's fulfilled his destiny. He has no other purpose. But now the Asgardians have a purpose. They need to find what happened to the real Balder. Right, because apparently the Balder that showed up here, that turned down Thor's request to get that drink for Scourge's memory, yeah, that was just Malekith the whole time. Malekith was really playing the long game. Like, I gotta say, I'm impressed with his plot. He took advantage of Lorelai's lovesick nature and managed to extend that to almost getting coronated ruler of all of Asgard. You know, I'm just surprised he wasn't found out by the birds. Where were the birds? Yeah, seriously. Everyone who knows Baldur should know, if you're ever suspicious of anything, check for birds, see what they're doing, take it from there. Yep, yep. But at least Thor now knows that he wasn't being blown off by his bro. So Thor and the Warriors 3 decide to go questing to find out what happened to their buddy Balder. Agnar wants to come too, of course, because Balder is his main dude. And Thor asks him to, no, instead stay in Asgard to guard Curse with the Sword of Frey just in case Curse decides to get all violent again. The Sword of Frey, after all, can cut through anything. Aw, I'm kind of disappointed that Thor and Agnar didn't get to go off and have their own adventure together. I'm just disappointed that from here on, Agnar isn't a very focal character, and after Simonson's run, people mostly forget about him. I love Agnar of Anaheim. You know, when we had our interview with Geek and Sundry, they were talking about the nature of comics and how there are different story arcs and runs on different creators. And while it can make things fresh and exciting, I say one of the disadvantages is like this, when a writer creates a character and has all this buildup, but the next writers aren't really interested, so it just kind of lays fallow. Agnar, we're waiting for you to come back. Jason Aaron, if you're listening, do some cool stuff with Agnar. We'd love to see him again. Yeah! But Thor, of course, immediately assumes that Malekith has escaped from the Dungeon of No Escape, because even Thor knows that it's no longer the Dungeon of No Escape. But they go there anyway, and they find Loki is there in chains. Because apparently Malekith pulled off the old switcheroo, replacing Loki with himself... 
that figure that was caught trying to blow up the stage? Yeah, that was just a patsy. That was Loki who Malekith threw in there knowing he'd get knocked unconscious. Now that Malekith is gone, the spell has been broken and Thor breaks his chains with a small tap of Mjolnir and Loki, furious at being tricked and beaten, teleports away. Well, that's all there is left to do in Asgard, so it's time to find Baldur. Everyone rides forth and conveniently hit a fork in the road with four different paths. So Thor and the Warriors Three each take one of them. That's handy. <laughs> it reminds me of the Princess Bride. Well, there were four white horses, and I thought, well, there are four of us. Exactly. Thanks, narrative, for being convenient. <laughs> As Thor and his horse, Widowwind, rest for the night, an old woman finds them. And the way this old woman is drawn by Salbusama is awesome. She really reminds me of, uh, like, one of the horror figures, one of the witches that Bernie Wrightson or somebody back in the EC Comics days would have drawn. Like, her face is all craggy, she's got this really long nose and chin, and she's all wrinkly. Like, uh, she looks the kind of old that sort of transcends being human and just turns into an oldness elemental. Yeah, she's like a classic archetype. And she asks Thor if he's come to save the ladies. He doesn't know who the ladies are, so she tells him immediately they are noble women captured in a nearby castle by Slagnabir the troll. She tells Thor that he can find these ladies and save them if he follows a path marked by a line of flowers. So on the one hand, this is clearly a fairy tale type setup that you would think Thor would be suspicious of. But on the other hand, Thor does live in the realm of fairy tales. He is steeped in Asgardian culture. So this very well could be genuine. As fairy tales go, this one feels sort of like a Western European fairy tale. That type of witch, that type of castle, that type of mysticism. I enjoy that throughout this entire run, Walter Simonson has been playing with different types of settings, different types of genres, and Thor kind of fits into all of them. Yeah, I really love like the Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm type fairy tales, and it's just so pleasing to see that thrown in here. And hours later, Thor does indeed find a castle that would fit into many of those fairy tales. This is a castle literally in the clouds, hovering high above the end of this path of single roses. And here, Thor really shows his intelligence, saying, But there is no sign of any other living being about, and no sign of Baldur or the captive maidens Granny spoke of. Nor is there any challenge to my presence from the floating fortress. The castle and valley reek of sorcery and illusion. He also notices that there is a giant troll skeleton, so apparently the threat has already been vanquished, and Thor has other priorities, so he's going to be smart and leave until he finds a ring on the ground. Now that we've finally gotten past the Lorelei love potion arc, people don't tend to spend too long in the dark about things. Like, if something is suspicious, they'll point out, hey, that's suspicious. Now, it doesn't mean they won't, you know, still interact with it. I mean, it's kind of like a Teen Titans comic where the best way to deal with a trap is to just go ahead and spring it, apparently. But it's satisfying that all of these characters that, that are so sympathetic and so heroic, they're not dummies. They recognize something's up, I'm going to at least acknowledge it before I handle it however I'm going to handle it. Indeed, because the ring Thor finds is Carnilla's ring, and he realizes that Balder must have been wearing it, which means Balder must be there, and also, if he's not currently wearing the ring, something must have happened. Now, we know that one method to get a perfectly accurate flashback is to have Agnar look at some footprints on the ground. We saw that in the Balder the Brave miniseries. Another method is to cut in on a conversation that Loki and Lorelai are having about their terrible relationship right before Loki looks in a crystal ball of seeing. Here we come upon Lorelai, who is trying to complain to Loki about the horrible things that Sif did and said, but true to Loki, he does not care. Lorelai, please. 
Much has happened during my stay in the prison of no escape, and most of it is far more important than anything the Lady Sif could conceivably have done to anybody. Loki's a really bad boyfriend. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a surprise, I just think it's worth stating. Definitely. But it's interesting to note that he still doesn't know about the potion and he hasn't put it together that Lorelai was inadvertently part of that plot. And at the same time, Lorelai, for once, has been playing it totally cool. Well done, Lorelai. She's learned from some of her mistakes. Congratulations, Lorelai. I mean, you're still terrible, but maybe you're a little less terrible or at least smarter. Well, and it kind of blows me away when we think back to the coronation scene. Loki is gone, but apparently she didn't raise a hue or cry or anything. She just went to the coronation and acted like nothing happened. I'm kind of impressed. But like we said, we're not just here for the drama of this failing relationship. We're also here for the crystal ball, the scrying crystal that Loki and Lorelai are looking into to see what happens to Balder the Brave. And we see Balder riding for Asgard. But he, too, is intercepted by Granny, and their exchange is almost identical to hers with Thor. It's basically a script, and he, too, is sent along to the castle in the clouds. And I like this. We're looking into the past after we've already seen Thor fall for this. Well, sort of fall for this. And so seeing Thor having already done that, knowing now that Balder did the same thing earlier, this really makes all of this quite ominous, because clearly this is not just suspicious, but this is actively murderously dangerous. Yeah, it really creeped me out, and it reminded me of the Enchanted Forest, our beloved, slightly creepy uh, local amusement park. Oh man, there's this, like, witch's hut-looking thing, and it's in the shape of a witch's head, and it does look a lot like Granny here. Yeah, and there's a lot of, like, animatronic, you know, mannequins and dolls that spit out the same lines day after day, hour after hour, just like this. Perfect. God, if I'd been in the Enchanted Forest as a child, I would have had so many nightmares. Oh, I lived it. I was there. Yes. (laughs) Nice. But Balder says, I should ride hard for Asgard where my duty calls me. But before I take on the responsibility of high office, Balder will enjoy one final adventure. I like to think of this interlude as Balder's, you know, the hangover. This is his bachelor party. He's about to settle down, give up adventure, accept responsibility, but he just wants one last party. And he arrives at the castle, saying, I doubt this is truly wise, for the silence tells me that even the animals shun this place. But I told Carnilla once that she would love me less if I did not ride to a splendid doom. And this is but a smallish castle. Oh, Balder, this is hilarious. I mean, Balder, you should have at least stuck around and asked a bird. (laughs) But the animals shun this place. There are no birds to ask. See, he should have. He really should have taken that to heart. And this is just such a, it's kind of a goofy story. It's very lighthearted. We see people making iffy decisions, but it's fun. And I mean, I'm not saying that the Frog Thor arc, which was, of course, the last non-Balder the Brave miniseries arc before this, was this gigantic warlike military epic, but it was really intense. And so seeing this sort of lighthearted lark afterward, it's a nice palate cleanser. Yeah, it's like a soap bubble. I don't think at any point I was truly concerned about Balder's fate here. It was just a nice diversion. So Balder leaps to a ladder high above the ground and climbs into the castle in the clouds, quickly finding... Three women tied to a tower, each with different styles and colors of hair and outfits. Like, they almost seem, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, color-coded. Yes, you'd mentioned they were like Voltron pilots or something. Or like magical girls or something. Yeah, like they each control a different element. I don't know. And their outfits, oh, they are amazing. 
There is one in particular, the blonde has this red outfit that has one sleeve and one opposite pant leg. It looks like she got really confused when she got dressed to go like dancer size or something. Oh man, she looks like somebody from an 80s music video. Actually, they all kind of do, just different genres. Yep, yep. But Balder vows to rescue them and calls out Slagenbeer, a gigantic troll with a mace and horn helmet who jumps out to attack him. And Slagnabir says that Baldur's blood will nourish yet another flower on the path. And we've seen, as we watched Thor and Baldur get to this castle, there are, like, a lot of flowers. Like, I don't know, probably hundreds. Yeah, it's definitely, like, leading the path to the castle are these little red flowers. But Baldur kind of comically easily defeats Slagenbur, tripping him, and he falls off the castle and dies. So Baldur frees the maidens, who say that Slagnabir killed their father the king, and then used them as bait to lure in these heroes to kill, presumably each of whom would have created another flower along the path. And they're super, like, sexy grateful, and they each put a token on him, a necklace, a belt, a ring, as they pet him and ask him about himself. You called yourself Baldur, but are you really he of whom the stories tell? Balder the Brave, I am called by those who... And have you a lady, Balder? I love a queen whom I have lately left. Carnilla is her name, and she is ever in my... And where are you from, brave Balder? The Golden Realm of Asgard. There is my hall and my... But he's forgotten everything, and they tell him that he's their lord, Anar. This sounds great to him, but he's troubled by his Carnilla ring now, and he throws it out the window. Yeah, all of the stories that we've seen with Balder, his miniseries, the entire run of the entire title leading up to this, it's all gone. He's just a dude living another life, very confused. It's like a slightly less obnoxious to watch Dougie Jones. Totally. Gosh, the Dougie Jones thing. If you haven't been watching Twin Peaks, uh, you should get the Showtime app and do it. But my reaction to this was... How dare you let other women accessorize you, Balder? Like, you just took Carnilla's ring. You were dating her, not dating her for years, and you finally accept a token, and then you stumble upon three damsels in distress and you let them dress you up. You kind of deserve what happened, Balder. I mean, you know, he and Carnilla could have had an arrangement, but we've seen so much of their conversations. I feel like we would have seen it on panel if they did. So I think Balder is breaking whatever rules they had. I don't feel good about that. Yes, and we both talked about how his tendency to give people the benefit of the doubt has finally caught up with him here. Like, this is the dark side of this for Balder. So that was our flashback, and back in the present in this very castle, Thor, having recognized the Carnilla ring that Balder used to wear, flies up to the castle. And again, he's being very cautious, saying, I'd best be on my guard. I'll wager that behind the great gate some maleficent force waits for the unwary. But Thor has spent a great deal of time among illusions lately, and no simple conjuring trick will suffice to deflect my purpose now. But when he arrives, he says, By the beard of my father! And inside there are the three lovely ladies, welcoming him and offering him the castle's delights. Yowza! I feel like they're kind of one-trick ponies. Like, what do we do if there's an intruder? We seduce him. If that doesn't work, what do we do? I don't know, we seduce them, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, or at least uh, offer them massages and jewelry. So Thor is suspicious as he is escorted into the castle in Thor number 369, for whom the bells troll. Okay, for whom the bells troll. That's that. That's actually really funny. <laughs> I that, really like that. I think we should absolutely rewrite that song and do it for karaoke for our fabled sometime karaoke night. For whom the bells troll. I 
did listen to a lot of Metallica when I was younger. (laughs) Yes, and the narration here states that Thor has located some other goodies. Oh, that's kind of uncomfortable. I don't know how I feel about that narration. I mean, that is how Ungertha and Kasi, these ladies, are presenting themselves. I mean, they are literally doing this as a as a way to trap people. So, oh man, we could we could talk about the commodification of femininity in Western culture, but then the episode would like be twice as long. So, <laughs> yes. just you know, assume that. We're thinking a lot about that as we describe the rest. Absolutely. And they run Thor through pretty much the same routine as Balder. They offer a lovely meal, a drink, which he refuses, thanks Lorelai, and a comfy seat. And suddenly that comfy seat launches toward the stone ceiling. Apparently that's how they've been killing people, among presumably other ways, like Slagnabir the Troll killing them. Thor, however, is quick on his feet and quick with his hammer and smashes through the ceiling with Mjolnir, saving himself. So the ladies call for Anar and a helmeted warrior comes to fight Thor. And once again, Thor, thankfully, is no dummy. He realizes that Anar's fighting style marks him very quickly as... Balder the Brave, and when he knocks Anar's helmet off, that's confirmed. And Thor is worried that this is going to be a fight to the death, so he uses Mjolnir to remove the enchanted tokens, which breaks the spell. And Balder says, Oh, Thor, is that you? I feel as though I have just awakened, and yet, perchance I dream, for I see a beard where formerly I saw a chin. To which Thor replies, Then you are indeed awake. The beard is new, and it is real. It's real, and it's spectacular, Balder. (laughs) (laughs) It is pretty spectacular. Okay, so this part reminds me, because quickly, Balder realizes, yes, he was taken in by these women. They've basically brainwashed him. The days of pleasure that he's been living were really just designed to keep him there. It really reminds me of that scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes, we just showed that to our son, Sid, a couple of weeks ago, and that's exactly what I thought when I read this part. We were in the nick of time. You were in great peril. I don't think I was. Yes, you were. You were in terrible peril. Look, let me go back in there and face the peril. No, it's too perilous. Look, it's my duty as a knight to sample as much peril as I can. No, we've got to find the Holy Grail. Come on. Oh, let me have just a little bit of peril. No, it's unhealthy. It's it's great. And I, I they don't really go in that direction at all. But still, like I can see a little part of Balder that's just, aww. This was way more fun than being king. It's true. I mean, he did want one last, you know, adventure, one last fling. And it turns out that maybe he had three. (laughs) (laughs) So Balder confronts the sorceresses and demands an explanation. And they try to plead loneliness and horniness, but Thor knows better, saying, Gertha, thou art as delicate as the dove that flies across the morning meadows. But I learned from a lady named Lorelei never to trust a drink or an appearance. And he places one of the enchanted tokens, a ring, on her finger, and she reverts to her true form, as do her sisters, and they are hideous troll hags! (sighs) Once again, we have female characters in this run who were deceptive, tricksy, sorcery ladies who used their feminine wiles to get moral men to do bad things. (sighs) It is disheartening that in so many cases here, beauty is merely a trap to deceive a man. And I'm really torn because 
the reason I object to this scene, it's just because it happens so much because the scene itself, this arc itself is fun. And certainly the idea of this like monstrous hag witch who does exactly this, like that's been an archetype in fairy tales for ages. That's like, that's a monster in the D&D monster manual. There's so many different kinds of hags that do this thing. And so I can't fault the story itself. It's just that it keeps happening, you know, and it's just unfortunate that the context taints what otherwise would be a fun tale. Yeah, it's the repetition and it's the lack of an alternate type of character. There's just not enough like women who are doing good and are, you know, functional. (laughs) There's Gudrun. We saw her earlier this uh, arc. She's great. That is true. But she only got to say one word. Ah, well, she said it quite well, at least. It's true. But the women attack Thor and Balder, but Balder, of course, does his new party trick. He blazes as hot as the sun, which surprises Thor, and then Thor does his party trick, which is destroying the floor, sending the troll hags to their death. And down below, Thor and Balder look upon the corpses of the hags, and Balder is uneasy about the whole thing. Thor says, May the castle now become a haven of peace. But Balder replies, But is peace always to be bought at the cost of life, Thor? So Balder and Thor take a moment to trade notes on new powers and new beards. And then they get ready to return to Asgard when the original old hag approaches them. Right, the Bernie Wrightson drawing that initially told each of them to go to this castle. And she claims to have been a victim of the troll's magic herself, asking Thor to pluck one of the flowers on the ground to break the spell. And against his better judgment, Thor picks the flower and the old hag is revealed to be a beautiful woman. My lord Thor, may I not return to Asgard with you and the lord Balder. My home is long since vanished, and I have nowhere to turn. Well. But here, Balder gets to be the smart one. He notices that the castle is still soaring above the clouds, which means troll magic is probably still happening. So it worked once, maybe it'll work twice. He places Carnilla's ring on this lady's finger as she screams, No! And is revealed to be Oglitha, the gigantic troll monster lady that Loki had originally contacted near the beginning of the arc. And Balder says, I think we've at last pierced the final enchantment, as her treacherous blade was about to pierce your heart. And Thor and Balder battle Oglitha, who is extra mad because they killed her husband and her daughters. Yeah, they had like a nice small family business going. I mean, they were getting some tax breaks, they were getting to bond with their children by bringing them into the family job, you know, and now it's all wrecked. Now all of them are dead except for Oglitha. Balder again burns like the sun, which blinds Oglitha, and then Thor throws Mjolnir at the castle, destroying it and sending the entire wreckage of this huge, I mean, Balder said it was a smallish castle, but it was a pretty big castle down on top of Oglitha, killing her. It's awesome because they've been having this epic fight and Oglitha is an amazing combatant. She's She's been crushing the hell out of Thor and Balder and smacking them around. And I gotta say, seeing a really cool big monster lady smacking people around is very satisfying because so often... Even female villains are still very traditionally feminine and beautiful. And so seeing one that just gets to be a monster, that's great. That's a nice change of pace. So many male villains are that way. Let's have some equality there. Let's have some women who also just get to be awesome, kick-ass monsters. It's pretty rad that they had to bring an entire house down on her to stop her. It kind of reminds me of the end of the Extinction Agenda in X-Men, that crossover that took place in Genosha, where the heroes end up dropping an entire giant skyscraper on the still-alive severed head of the villain to finally finish him off. Of course, it turns out he comes back later. But still, he's out for a while. Cameron Hodge is so creepy. I would just burn it with fire and then bury it and then shoot it into space or something. (laughs) He's the Rasputin of X-Men villains. Yes. 
But with that taken care of, Balder and Thor ride back toward Asgard, and Balder asks if Thor is sorry that he gave up the throne. That is the question, Balder. I have been asking myself since I first proposed your name to the great Althing. If I had taken the throne, I would have had to have given up adventures such as this. I doubt if I could have stood it. And Balder says... I rode wide-eyed into the honey trap of the castle because I was sorry to give up such things. But after this, I think perhaps being king would not be a bad idea. I might make less of a fool of myself. And this conversation is really nice because the arc started with Heimdall wondering if Balder becoming king would alter Thor and Balder's friendship and Thor wondering that himself. And here they just talk it out and they don't even need a rooftop or anything. (laughs) And as they ride off... They talk about how maybe it's time that they have that drink for Scourge the Executioner, but they actually won't get around to it yet. Don't worry, it will happen eventually, just not yet. They're going to be busy having other adventures in the meantime. And speaking of those other adventures, over the course of this arc, we've seen a couple of scenes that will lead toward what happens next. Now, I talked earlier about how Sal Buscema has sort of a Silver Age quality to his work. Now, here we see that plot-wise, the Silver Age is kind of creeping back into Thor because we are reintroduced to Thug Thatcher, a Silver Age villain who is introduced in Journey into Mystery 89 in 1963. Yeah, and Elizabeth, you found this issue, and uh, we both read it before recording. He's just sort of a generic gangster guy. Like, he's nobody I would ever think would have come back, especially decades later. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see what made Walter Simonson bring this character back and kind of open him up and give him kind of a grandeur and a pathos that he certainly didn't have. I mean, this is a character who was literally in one issue more than 20 years ago. Well, here we see him getting out of prison where he's been since Thor put him away back in the day. And the guards tell him to keep his nose clean. But Thug Thatcher is immediately thinking about revenge on the reason he was imprisoned. Thor himself. He heads to the airport with the unnecessarily but perfectly grandiose narration. A plane may defy the shackles of gravity for a little while, but a man is only as free as his mind. Now Thug's first stop is the home of his ex-girlfriend. This was a woman we first saw in Journey to Mystery 89, Thug Thatcher's first and so far only appearance, who at the end of the issue had her memory removed by Thor, back when Asgardian magic could basically do whatever. I guess the idea was that, you know, she deserved to do better than Thug Thatcher, so she'd be better off this way. That's uh, pretty patronizing, if you ask me. Yeah, the through line was that she was in love with Thug Thatcher against her better nature, and that no matter what happened, she would return to him, even though she herself wanted to reform. So Thor asked for the permission to remove these memories, not from her, but from Odin, and did it so, in his mind, she could go forward and find someone worthy of her. And she apparently did because she's got kids now. Not a husband. It's implied that he died. And when Thug Thatcher shows up, he's a little horrified that she doesn't remember who he is. He forces his way inside her house and grabs her and Ruby slaps him and threatens to call the cops. And Thug is enraged, saying, You dumb broad! I ain't taking no lip from my ex-mall! I really love this generic gangster dialogue. Totally. And he pulls a gun on Ruby, but realizes... I don't believe it, but I can see it in your eyes. You really don't remember me, do ya? This is more of Thor's dirty work. He ruins my life, sends me to prison, and takes away my girl's memory. Well, he's gonna live to regret it, because I know the magic word. Jane Foster. 
And this is just kind of an incredible twist. I mean, we've been away from Midgard for a long time now. We've been in Asgard. We've had the coronation. You know, us personally, we did the Baldur the Brave miniseries. So it's kind of interesting to go back to Midgard for a story like this. And especially to hear the name Jane Foster again. Jane Foster, everybody's familiar with these days because A, she's the current Thor, and she's awesome, and B, she was a major player in the Thor movies, but she has not even been mentioned more than briefly in Walter Simonson's entire run. So we're going back to a one-shot Silver Age villain, we're going back to Thor's ex that he hasn't uh, talked about really since before this run started. This is an interesting choice, and I'm curious to see where it goes. I mean, I know where it goes because I've read it, but I'm curious to talk in detail about where it goes. One should also take note that Ruby's kids, here called Jeff and Bill, but later called Mick and Kevin, I don't know, maybe those are nicknames, maybe it's because she lost her memory because of Thor, I don't know, Uh, they're going to kind of continue on as well, and I end up liking them a lot, but we'll get to that later, because that's the end of this arc, but not the end of the episode. It's time, of course for our Recognitions of Merit. And Miles, why don't you start us off with the Crack-A-Doom Award. Okay, I had so many options here. I was pleased to find that even though Salvia Sem is now doing art instead of Walter Simonson, we have no shortage of excellent sound effects. My runners-up were in issue 367, which I suppose was still Simonson, but it's her smashing through into the prison of no escape with a Cash-Thoom! And very shortly thereafter, as he shatters part of the coronation platform, his blow makes a Cthum. It's almost like Curse has themed sound effects. Like, it all sounds vaguely like Cthum, Cashthum, something like that. It makes me wonder whether everything he does makes that noise. Like, you know, he ties his shoes, Cthum. He flushes the toilet, Cthum. Like, it's just everything. Speaking of the toilet, I bet he does that because of the Beyonder. I bet the Beyonder, like a little kid making an action figure, he's like, not only going to make him super powerful, every time he moves, a super awesome sound effect is going to happen. I approve, Beyonder. I don't approve of very much that you do, but this, I approve of. <laughs> but I think the winner of the crack doom Award for this arc has to be the paired on either side of the transforming corpse as Agnar touches Baldur's corpse revealing him to really be Malekith the Accursed. There's something about the way that the sound effects themselves go back and forth between the letters S and K, and the fact that the sound effects are identical on either side of this vertical tall panel that just really makes it seem like the magic is coruscating through Baldur slash Malekith's entire body and through the panel itself. It's a good use of sound effect placement to really get across not just the sound the sound effect makes, but the feel that we can gain from it. I really like that one. Yeah, that's a great example of when a sound effect really adds to the experience visually of a panel. Definitely. Speaking of visuals, Elizabeth, tell us about the winner of Hell's Haberdashery. And this isn't exactly a hat. It's Curse's whole head, which I guess is probably armor, maybe. I don't even know if he's got a body under that armor. Yeah, it's this orange and black dome with various red spikes coming out of it from all angles and a bat light cut out over the eyes. And then he's got these white spikes. Spikes coming out where his mouth would be, kind of like teeth. And it's just so scary and impressive, especially when he kind of goes dormant and goes away. It's just, it's so creepy. Curse is really eerie. I do love the visual design of Curse. And I'm curious who came up with them because I believe we initially see him in other books. I mean, it's like his fourth appearance by the time he shows up in Thor. We should go back and find out who drew him for the first time and whether that was the same person who designed him. I don't even know if that information is still available like all these decades later. But yeah, I'm wondering... If, if anybody has done it, it will be on the internet, and we will find it. 
All right, Dr. Internet, let's do this. But first, let's finish the episode. Next, Miles, what is your Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award? Okay, so for the worthiest object of this arc, there is no contest. It's Thor's beard! It is such a good beard, and I feel like he should have always had one. And when he shaves it off right after Walter Simonson's run, A, how did he get his face fully restored? I mean, maybe there's a good reason, but not a good enough reason, damn it. Like, he should have just kept it forever. It's it's just so even and full. I mean, I've had a beard since I could grow one when I was a teenager, and I struggle for that. Like, my cheek lines and my neck lines, I can never quite get them right. And Thor, maybe it's because he's chipping away with Mjolnir or something to trim that part. He's just got it down. What I meant to mention earlier is I love when his beard is introduced on the covers. You know, there's the corner art of Thor, and it's immediately the same drawing, but with a beard. (laughs) It's pretty great, yeah. (laughs) Everybody loves a beard. Uh, My favorite rendition of Thor's beard, we're not at it quite yet, but when Thor number 373 comes out, that's going to be a month where Marvel was celebrating their 25th anniversary by having just these close-up portraits of one of the main characters of each comic. And there was the same border of all the different superheroes all around them. But there's a Walter Simonson drawing portrait of Thor just looking very solemn and serious with his new beard and he just looks so just imposing and impressive and I I, I love it I want that framed I gotta say Thor isn't really my type but that Thor can get it right (laughs) all right well with that decided it's time for the most important of our awards Elizabeth what is this arcs most metal moment and again like the beard this was a pretty easy choice Aglitha being killed by a damn castle falling on her. Like, what is more metal than that? An entire building falling on this giant, you know, malevolent, beautifully designed troll. It was amazing. I mean, I follow Hobgadling's advice from Sandman. I think death is a mugs game and I don't ever want to die. But if I gotta go, you could do a lot worse than having a giant castle dropped on you in the middle of an epic combat with space vikings. It's true. It's like dying on like a Ferris wheel or a a roller coaster. Your epitaph is just, dude, it was so awesome you should have seen it. (laughs) Yes, indeed. That was a great moment. And we have more great moments ahead. Because next time, the future rights the wrongs of the past, and Thor finds injustice beneath the streets of New York. Justice Peace, Zaniac, and Thor's alliance with X-Factor during the Mutant Massacre. This has been, and shall ever be, The The Lightning Lightning and and the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then, fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! For Asgard!